Thank you for listening to Eclipse Epics. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 23, Exit Mannerheim and Stalin. Last time, we talked about the tragedy that was the Winter War, yielding to the farce that was the Continuation War. Today, we're going to end this series of wars between the Soviets and the Finnish with the whimper that was the Lapland War. Finland and the USSR signed the Moscow Armistice to end the Continuation War. In this armistice, the Finns agreed to the borders set after the Winter War in 1940 and the Soviet Union taking Palazzo. Finland also paid war reparations roughly equal to about $4.6 billion in today's U.S. currency. So about how much the Washington football team is going to go for after Daniel Snyder actually sells it. The Soviet Union also wanted the Finns to legalize the Communist Party and then ban parties that the USSR found fascist. This ranged all the way from actually fascist parties to slightly right parties that didn't really agree with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union also wanted to put those responsible on trial, and this included Risto Riddy, the former president of the Finnish Republic, and he could not be saved, and he was actually put on trial. And at the very end, the last thing that the Soviet Union wanted was to kick the Germans out of Lapland, which is the northern part of Finland, where the Germans are camping out and where they had problems dealing with the Soviets during the Continuation War. Now, the Germans, now this is like 1944, didn't really want to leave. And the Finns didn't really want to kick them out. But after growing threats from Stalin and the Soviet Union... Finland was forced to fire on the Germans, and within two months, the Germans actually withdrew from Finland into neutral Sweden. And with that, Finland embarks on a half-century-long treacherous path where it isn't exactly behind the Iron Curtain, but it wasn't totally free either. But we're going to get to that. Before we get to that, we're going to talk about the rest of the life of one of the most important characters in this story. That is Mannerheim. After World War II, Mannerheim had to deal with those crazy demands from the USSR. This is still technically during World War II, but after the war that Mannerheim had to fight, he had to deal with those crazy demands. He had actually successfully rebuffed many of the war criminals that Stalin wanted to put on trial, quote-unquote. And his haggling with the USSR, his haggling with the USSR was partially successful due to the fact that he was actually speaking in Russian to the Soviet Union and the Soviet uh, diplomats. So they could claim, and he could claim no miscommunication between the two parties, right? As the peace terms were being hammered out, Mannerheim went to Portugal to 
to recuperate. He's he's suffering from a lot of health problems, right? This is this is kind of the twilight of his life. We're getting to the end times for Mannerheim here. Um and on the return, he had to stop again to keep recuperating because he got sick yet again. So this is going to be a constant theme in Mannerheim's life. So much so in 1946, around January, his doctor said, Mannerheim, you're not fit to be president anymore. you got to go. So two months later, because Mannerheim is a stubborn person probably, he re- actually resigned. And with all of that free time that he had, um, what he decided to do was write a memoir, which unsettled the very uneasy political system that Finland had set up post the Second World War. Now, the prime minister at the time politely paid him a visit and politely reminded him that incendiary remarks could make the bloc super hot. And the bloc I'm referring to is the tension between the Soviet Union and the Finnish Republic. So he goes to Switzerland to write this memoir. Um, He doesn't spark another war between the USSR and the Finnish Republic, so that's a good thing. Um, In his time in Switzerland, he finds a lady friend, 30 years his junior. Now, if we're going to be really cynical here, and I tend to be really cynical when men and women get together, assuming a heteronormative society and relationship i understand that not everyone is that way but we're just going to assume those things at this point anytime i see a man and a woman getting together and it's mentioned in the histories i'm like okay so they are boning right like i i think where i'm erring is that is basically to assume if a man and woman are together they're boning um now that can actually um backfire on you because I don't know if you guys watch The Crown. Um, I'm currently on the most current season, the fifth season, so if you don't want any spoilers, uh, stop listening in three, two, one. So in one of the more recent ones that I've seen, I think it's like the sixth episode, um, they started talking about um, the Queen's reproachment with the new um, Russian Republic under Boris Yeltsin and talking about um, digging up the remains of the slain Romanovs that happened during the Bolshevik Revolution. What's the word I'm looking for? Significant to that is the fact that the Queen's husband, Philip, was carrying on a friendship with a person who is probably two to three decades his younger, very attractive. And if you want to look at it from the perspective of, hey, well, once again, man and woman getting together, probably boning. You know, Viagra is, I think, a thing in, you know, at this time. We're talking like 1995, mid-1990s. So, yeah, there's probably some shenanigans going on here. Now, the Crown has not resisted the urge to bang on Philip's infidelities. They have taken every opportunity to basically rake him over the coals for his infidelities to Elizabeth. So I'm going to say in this instance that 
um, this time, Philip was not being unfaithful. Because if he was, that series would have dragged him for it. Be like, it's just another example of Philip being ungrateful to Elizabeth and all that stuff, right? They'll they'll do their best to make a um what's the word I'm looking for? A make it look logical, like get you to be like, Okay, I can kinda understand why Philip did this, but at the end of the day, he's still kind of a jerk, right? So I say all that to say, when I saw this the first time, I'm like, Oh, okay, so they're boning, right? But on the reflection, and I just saw this episode today, the day I'm recording this, right? I'm just like, oh, maybe it's not that way. Maybe not every man and woman relationship that is close, you know, that they're close and they, you know, they value each other on an emotional level and an intellectual level automatically goes to the fact that you're boning. But I think it might also be the exception that proves the rule. So that's the only thing that gives me a little bit of pause. So the late 1940s, as I've kind of been saying, uh, Mannerheim really hits the twilight of his life. Um, he almost died in 1946. That's why I took that sojourn, you know, in Portugal and then trying to come back. He had to take another one because he was in pretty dire straits. He increases his time in the hospital and it culminates with him being hospitalized in 1951 from a descended abdomen. He required emergency surgery for a blocked intestine. And he slips into a coma on January 27th, 1951. And he doesn't wake up from it. He dies the next day, quote unquote, which is the anniversary of a decisive strike during the Finnish Civil War that helped the whites beat the Reds at the same time because the Finnish Civil War doesn't end for like three more months because we're talking late January 1918, right? As anniversary-wise, we're, we're 1951 now, talking about the death of Mannerheim. Mannerheim left no instructions but was given a state funeral. He was interned in the military section of Helsinki's Hyatanami Cemetery. And think of it as Finland's version of Arlington National Cemetery, where a lot of our fallen soldiers are laid to rest. Tens of thousands lined up to see Mannerheim for six hours, and it was snowing outside. It was pretty cold. Remember, this is like dead of winter in a subarctic region. It is January. <laughs> Very end of January. Hundreds of thousands lined the streets to pay respect to some could call the, you know, we'll get to it, the father of modern day Finland. Afraid of the backlash from the USSR, only two government ministers came. And this is indicative of the new state of the Finnish Republic. The person tapped to do Mannerheim's eulogy, and I'm guessing Mannerheim would have rolled over in his grave when he heard this, was the leader of the Social Democrats. And yet again, another thing indicative of the new state of the Finnish Republic. And what I mean by indicative of the new state of the Finnish Republic is the idea, and we're going to get to this in, I think, an episode or two, is the idea that 
the Finns as part of the not quite being behind the Iron Curtain but not totally free thing have to kind of genuflect and kind of always look over their shoulder to their east and be like, all right, well, is this going to piss off our neighbor to the east? That relationship between the Soviets and the Finns reminds me of something like the relationship that the United States has with Mexico. I know a lot of people living in the United States don't think this way, but I guarantee uh, a lot of decisions made by the PRI in Mexico are filtered through the lens of, is this really going to piss off the United States? And if it does too much, we're probably not going to do it. So with that, I think we need to talk about Mannerheim's standing as a great figure or even a figure in history. And he is the father of the modern Finnish nation. He is their George Washington. And just as George Washington did, he hated democracy. And that might sound shocking to a lot of people that buy the the lies that are sold to them in history classes that our founding fathers were proponents of democracy. No, they were proponents of them being able to vote while other people did not vote and keeping other people out. And in this case, it's everyone else who didn't own land. So basically anyone else who wasn't white and rich and a man. The int- the most interesting part of Mannerheim's character is the fact that he had a distaste for democracy, but he found it better than communism, so he tolerated it. But one of the most like surprising things about Mannerheim is he had the opportunity to become the king of Finland. Like that what like a regent. He had that opportunity. It was presented to him in 1918 and he denied it. He was like, "No, Let's kind of stick with the whole democracy thing. We we did this. I, I I don't know. Like if I had to, if I could go back and ask him, like, why didn't you choose to be king? You don't like you don't like democracy. You know, and it's okay. You don't like democracy. It's messy. Demo- democracy. If you know, if you're living through these times in the twenty early twenty twenties, you know as well as anyone, it's really messy. Um. But he decided to deny. He just he decided no. Let's stick with the like, let's stick with the democracy and see what happens, right? Um, and that democracy didn't treat him well in the nineteen thirty or nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. I started treating him a little bit better because remember, after the Civil War, he was a a figure that was derided and almost a memory that was damned. He was called the White Butcher. In a lot of circles, he was a pariah, um, and he constantly was saying, "Like, hey, we need to be we need to be vigilant about our neighbor to the east." And some people can look at that, especially people who were on the more leftist side of things, can look at it as just like, "Oh, it's just another old, another old man afraid of like changing times and stuff like that." Because remember, at this time, we're talking the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. We haven't gotten to the worst excesses of the Soviet Union yet. We don't have enough time between those events to see, oh, yeah, it was actually really bad there. And maybe we should be very, very careful about what we agitate for and what we don't agitate for. Um, so with all of that said, 
the death of Mannerheim brings about us to talk about another death because about two years later, Stalin dies. But to talk about the death of Stalin, we need to go back to where we left him off. And we left him off doing a decent job making chicken salad out of chicken bleep when it comes to the Winter War. And before I get into this retrospective proper, I do want to say that this history of Stalin from the end of the Winter War to the death of the Soviet premier is in no way comprehensive. And it's going to sound like a history of the Soviet Union from the end of the Winter War to the death of Stalin. And there are two reasons for that. First reason is there are a lot of books, there's a lot of ink spilled about Stalin's life and career. If you want to flesh that out and read about things that I'm not talking about, there are many books available to you. I think, um, what did uh, Simon Sebag Montfiere write? What was the title of his book? I think it was the, uh, the Stalin, The Court of the Red Czar. I think that was the title. I don't know it off the top of my head. And two, I'm just going over the more interesting things that I find interesting with it. Um, Mannerheim is a character that it gets short shrift in a lot of histories of World War II because of Finland's position and the war itself engulfing everything else around it. So I wanted to take a little bit more care with Mannerheim than you probably think I'm doing here with Stalin. Mostly because there's plenty of books on Stalin that you can read and find out more about his character. And also, one of the reasons I'm doing this is tying basically the history of the Soviet Union from the Winter War, the end of the Winter War, to the death of Stalin is basically Stalin's in charge of the Soviet Union. He is the Soviet Union. Like, he is like Louis Fourteenth. He is the state. So... If it sounds like a history of the Soviet Union, it is because Stalin is the state. After the Winter War, they set up a bunch of trials to, or as they call them, fact-finding missions. And basically blame that head of um, intelligence and haul him off and shoot him in the back of the head and be like, okay, well, that's the problem. We're done here. You start to see the tensions between the Soviet Union and the Nazis. Um, building and building and building. Slowly but surely, that non-aggression pact turns itself into a there's going to be aggression happening soon, and that turns on June 22nd, 1941 into, oh yeah, the aggression's here, when the Nazis on an 1,800-mile-long front invade the Soviet Union. And Stalin, to be honest with you, didn't deal with that well. This is a misnomer, and Dan Carlin did this in his Ghost of the Ost Front, too. Stalin was caught off guard by Hitler, but people misattribute him being caught off guard to the fact that he trusted him. It wasn't that. It was that he didn't think the Nazis would invade that soon. 
And as a result of him being caught off guard, the Soviets are wholly unprepared for this war. Stop me if any of this sounds familiar. Stalin goes on an epic binge, uh, like an epic uh, binge drinking marathon. And he is basically out of commission for 12 days until on July 3rd, 1941, he proceeds to address the Soviet population. And in that speech, he dispenses with a lot of the proletariat, like Leninist, Stalinist rhetoric, and he addresses the Soviets as brothers and sisters and citizens, right? And that starts to galvanize the the Soviet Union. Um, he makes a very smart decision at the very beginning of this invasion, after he's been done drinking his liver in under the table, basically. And he basically says any industry that's in the western part of the Soviet Union, guess what? You're going east. Shut everything down. We're going to take the hit and just go east and, and install everything there. Now, Let's just think about the the gargantuan task it took to strip everything down in a more temperate west in the middle of like July and August and September, move that stuff all the way to the east to Siberia and put that stuff together. And you're doing this now in the beginning of winter, end of fall and into the winter. And it is cold as all get out. I can just imagine how cold these people were shivering just like trying to like rivet you know i-beams well you don't rivet i-beams together but probably like ratchet i-beams together do some sort of welding you know maybe you're welding your hand by accident it gets some type of heat on it like i i can only like i'm trying to empathize with the amount of cold a lot of those workers felt and the only time i can really think of it is like i remember at my current job we had to go outside in the middle of winter to do something for one of the trades. You know, my job allows the trades to do their job in a, in some ways. And we had to do a bunch of stuff outside and it was freezing. We were out there for an hour. It was probably like, you know, 10 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. And it's not as bad as Siberia, but me and this other worker, while one of the older workers was like doing whatever he was doing, we were like shivering and it was miserable. And we're looking at each other. I'm like, this sucks. And I can only imagine that the move to Siberia, while a good strategic and logistical decision, sucked for everyone involved except, you know, the Soviet elite sitting in you know moscow and the kremlin drinking and having these drinking parties all of the time so he also made some pretty bad decisions right like the most critical one was like oh the nazis are invading let me go on a 12-day bender one of the worst ones for the soviet population was his decision to not let the citizens of Leningrad evacuate as the Finnish and Nazi forces were surrounding it. Um, it caused way more deaths than it should have. And if I had to put my finger on the reason for it is, well, Leningrad, formerly St. Petersburg, 
was one of the more western cities in the Soviet Union. You, I remember in the Great Terror reading uh, the Great Terror, the 40-year reassessment by Robert Conquest, and he would talk about the devastation the Great Purges had, and he would basically say Leningrad was devastated way more than everybody else. He, f- he made a point of saying, okay, well, the rest of the party was this, and the party in Leningrad was this. And I think part of the reason is, like, that town, that city, was established by Peter the Great, who was a Western-facing, quote-unquote, liberal emperor. And Stalin looked at that as a appendage that would, you know, a, a soft underbelly, if you will, that if left on uh, manicured in a lot of ways is going to lead to the downfall of the Soviet Union. So he's very harsh on those people. And he continued to be harsh on that people when the Germans and Finnish forces surrounded it in 1941, leading to that two and a half year siege that I was talking about in an earlier episode. But he also, along with the Soviet army made good decisions um it is at this point a rote way of looking at things basically saying the soviets were completely unprepared you know in 1941 for the invasion which they partially were and they didn't recover into say until say 1942 end of 1942 and 1943 i think a lot of americans like that narrative because it makes them feel better even though their performance in the beginning of World War II was not great, especially against the Nazis in North Africa. Um, But in 1941, the Germans are within miles of Moscow. And if they can topple that capital, it might be the end of the Soviet Union. You're looking at a Nazi-centered Europe with a Russia that is absolutely devastated because the reason for invading the Soviet Union is, is Lebensraum, correct, right? So it's... But they can't take Moscow. They are counterattacked from the east. A bunch of forces from the east in Siberia and repelled. And that campaigning season comes to an end. And the best chance the Nazis had to take over the Soviet Union comes to an end 1942 they try to reboot the nazis to try to reboot this um and they make good progress again right the the once the dry season comes after the wet of the spring the tanks move and they're able to outmaneuver the soviet union until they get to a little town called stalingrad and basically is vicious fighting and Yet again, Stalin waits until the most opportune time to unleash fresh troops in winter gear from Siberia and basically crush the 6th Army and destroy it, making Hitler and the high command look really, really stupid because they said on um, on their radio broadcast that Paulus and the 6th Army went to the grave fighting for the Third Reich. And no, Paulus, Paulus 
surrendered. So this is the classic turning point. You know, like history turns on a dime and it's just like it turns in that way completely. It's not how it works, but a lot of people look at it like this is the turning point. Like Midway is the turning point in the Pacific Theater, which it wasn't, but it it was kind of sort of like that is the like, okay, where you can clearly see the winds, where the winds are blowing. And in the case of the Soviet Union, it's them beating the Nazis all the way back to Berlin. After one of the biggest tank battles in all of history, the biggest tank battle in all of history at Kursk, and, and then another tank battle at Kharkov, the Soviet Union's or the Nazis are just taking blow after blow, and the Soviet Union is delivering blow after blow after blow. This is something that, again, our view of World War II in Western countries, especially in the United States, don't really understand. The Soviet Union soaked up nine, nearly 90% of the Nazis' war effort. Without the Soviet Union, the West does not win World War II. I don't know what happens, but it is not a clear victory, an unconditional surrender like Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted because of what happened in World War I. It, it, it doesn't happen that way, I don't think. So, after all of that, like by 1945, it is agreed that the the country taking Berlin, toppling Berlin, is going to be the Soviet Union. A, because they've done most of the work. And B, because Berlin is located in eastern Germany, right? This is going to cause a problem in the post-World War II era where we split Germany into east and west. But the capital of Germany is in Berlin, which is basically in the middle of East Germany. So basically you have a you know a bastion of you know western capitalism and democracy you know in a sea of communism. But with all of that the you know the Soviets take Berlin, topple Hitler, Hitler kills himself and World War 2 ends and the Alliance of convenience that was the West and the Soviet Union collapses because anytime a coalition wins a large war, the victors of that war then start turning on each other. It, it doesn't matter whether they're all capitalists or all or they're all communists. This is what happens, you know. It's just like, well, I need my piece of the pie. I need my piece of the pie. No, I did more. You no, I did more. Like all that stuff starts to happen and Germany is split a lot of Europe descends Eastern Europe specifically descends within the uh, under the auspices of the Iron Curtain as Churchill put it the only exception to that duality that dichotomy is Finland right like I said they are not under the Iron Curtain but they're not totally like free they got attention there, which we're going to get to in another episode, I do promise. So, the with the split of East and West Germany and East and West Berlin, begins the antagonism be- between the West and the Soviet Union. And Stalin and the West, and basically Stalin and Truman, and Stalin and Eisenhower. Stalin gets annoyed with the West uh, getting involved in things that they shouldn't get involved in, or he thinks they shouldn't get involved in. 
So he cuts off West Berlin from any land transport of supplies and material. And this is a bad situation for people living in West Berlin. But some cunning of mine came up with the idea of, like, why don't we just fly our supplies in? And that's exactly what the West and led by the United States did until basically Stalin was like, okay, this is a bad idea, so I'll stop doing it. But the Soviet Union is going to have a a long history of, like, okay, anytime I want to piss off the West, I can just threaten West Berlin, and they can they'll at least come to the negotiating table and we can get something favorable out of it. One of Stalin's more underrated, I don't want to say accomplishments, but diplomatic ploys is his dealing with the Korean War. Now, this opinion and and thought is controversial. It comes from... Zach Tuam Lee's series on the Korean War. He does a podcast called When Diplomacy Fails, and he does a he does a series on the Korean War. And basically the argument he makes, I haven't listened to this in many years, I probably should have listened to it before recording this episode, is the idea that Stalin encouraged North Korea, the father of Kim Kim Jong, I think it's Kim Jong, it was Kim Jong Soon, and then his son was Kim Jong Il, and then his, his son, the current one, is Kim Jong Un. I think that's how that goes. Um, but the leader of North Korea at the time encouraged that dictator to invade the the south of Korea. And the reason is because he wanted Mao Zedong, who is the newly appointed leader and, you know, fresh winner of the Civil War of China, the, of Communist China, to give up on trying to get back Taiwan. Now, if you know anything about the tensions that have been happening recently between China and Taiwan, a lot of those tensions are born right here. Chinese Civil War. The, the communists take the mainland of China and the, the quote-unquote Republicans go to Taiwan. And that tension has existed ever since that loss happening in the 1950s. But it is a somewhat of a political, I don't want to say masterstroke, but it is a just a piece of just duplicitous double dealing where it's just like yeah why don't you invade this like and South Korea was ill-prepared and Twombly makes an argument that it was purposely ill-prepared so the United States could get into the the Korean conflict and re-beef up the military because they had this like what's the word I'm looking for naive notion that they could go back to normalcy after the end of the Second World War. And the rest of the world was like, no, you can't. Who's going to take care of the rest of the world? The British can't do it because they are in debt and they've fought two world war- wars. The French can't do it. Like, they're just trying to hold on to French Indochina at this point. But also another thing happening, 
like at the same time, uh, I remember reading an article about the Korean War basically saving the kind of independent communist state of Yugoslavia because if not for the Korean War, the Soviet Union and Stalin would have crushed the independent republic, socialist republic, communist state of Yugoslavia. The Korean War actually saved that that bulwark of and kind of like thorn in the in the side of the Soviet Union because Tito is not a man that is going to bend to anyone's wills and run someone else's program without his own flair of the dramatic. And if you don't believe me, let's fast forward to the year 1956 where Hungary mounts its own revolution, revolt, whatever you want to call it, against communist rule in that country. And what did the Soviet Union do when it had nothing to th- else to think about? Because it's the year 1956. The Korean War is over. They're probably doing some little BS things in West Berlin. but there's ri- And they're probably fueling a lot of the freedom movements in, say, Africa and Asia, especially, say, in, like, Vietnam, even Laos. But what happened? They're not really paying attention to anything. There's nothing huge going on. What happened? It was crushed. So you could definitely see a Yugoslav state, which is made up of Croatia, Serbia, and I believe Albania off the top of my head. I don't know. There's a third. might be Slovenia. Um, I'm probably wrong on that. I'm doing a lot of this off the top of my head. But it is crushed. Absolute hunger is crushed, and you could see a way more uniform southeastern Europe in Serbia, and Croatia, and Slovenia, and Albania than you do now as a result of the Korean War not happening. With all that happening, we get to 1953, March 5th. 1953. Korean War is still kind of sort of going on. Like, it's still going on today, you know, 2022, because they signed an armistice and not a peace deal. But, nevertheless, March 5th, 1953, Stalin dies in bed, pissing himself. And not a moment too soon, to be honest with you. He's probably one of the worst men in all of history. If not the worst man in all of history, and the only reason Hitler kind of beats him and we're so scared of Hitler, especially in the West, is Hitler moved his country very much with his tongue and his speech. And living in a liberal democracy, that's scary because demagogues are scary. They can get you can get people to do a bunch of things if you can speak well. A bunch of things, whether they're good or bad. You can either have a Martin Luther King or you can have an Adolf Hitler, right? And and some in between too, right? But if you... And the reason we're not scared of Stalin, and I think a lot of people on the right uh, tend to be like, why aren't you scared of communism? Why are you scared of Stalin? And the reason we're not is because Stalin is a thug. 
and we don't see thugs becoming the president of the United States and taking it a rickety system and turning it into a a United States of communism or United Union of Socialist States of America or something like that. I don't know what the name the proper name would be if that actually happened or something like that. After his death, there's a lot of vying for position. He has a, an elaborate state funeral. Nikita Khrushchev comes to power, who we've had cause to deal with in the Winter War. And basically, uh, as Khrushchev becomes premier of the Soviet Union, Stalin's memory is damned. And once again, good riddance. Because he was a piece of garbage. He is not a good person. Like, the best story I have to illustrate that is when he was young. Some of his friends saw, like, a calf struggling in, like, a rip current or, like, a really strong current in a river. So he goes to save it. Sounds really nice, right? He takes it out of the river, waits for everyone to watch him and be like, oh, yeah, look how good I am. And then breaks the calf's legs. You're a piece of garbage, dude. Like, straight up. Thanks for helping beating the Nazis. Or actually, basically beating the Nazis. But, like, you're a piece of garbage, dude. Straight up. Like, I... That... When I heard that story, I'm like, okay, dude. You're, you're, a, piece of, you're a piece of trash. Literally. And I know I, know, I know... I know I shouldn't say that. I know it doesn't sound like whatever. But that's some... Like... There's a way you treat animals and people and there's a way you don't and if you're treating people like Stalin did chances are you're a piece of trash with that said in the next episode we're going to get to the ends of some other players in our story Tamoshenko Shapashnikov we might get to Pavu Taliva and everyone's favorite screw up of this series Cyril Meritzkoff. Thanks for listening.